Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Ever since the time of the Enlightenment, there have been religious people who heartily affirm that Jesus is an excellent example of how to live a morally upstanding life. They'll tell you that Jesus serves as an excellent example because he was kind and compassionate to people. He loved people. He treated them with respect and dignity. He taught us how to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Some of our nation's founding fathers um, held Jesus in this regard. They affirmed that he was a great teacher of morality, but they did not believe that he is the incarnate son of God. They did not believe that he is the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. They did not believe that he's the messianic savior who lived and died and rose from the dead to save his people from their sins. They simply believed that Jesus was a good man who served as a good example of how to live a good moral life. And this concept of Jesus being an example of a good moral person has persisted over the past couple of centuries. Uh, C.S. Lewis spoke about it in the 1940s during his BBC radio talks. Those radio talks were so impactful that they soon became Uh, were published in a book, a book that you probably are very well familiar with, one called Mere Christianity. And this is where the now famous liar, lunatic, or Lord apologetic originated from. Lewis wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So whenever somebody says or tells you that Jesus was a good moral teacher or that he serves as an example of how we should live, an alarm should go off in your head. Uh, You should be alert to the very real possibility that the person who's speaking to you may not believe Jesus is actually the son of God. He may believe that Jesus was only a human born of a father and mother, just like you and me, and happened to live an exemplary life. 
But that being said, let's also be very quick to acknowledge that there's nothing wrong in affirming that Jesus was a good moral teacher because he was a good moral teacher. Nor is there anything wrong with affirming that Jesus serves as an example for us to follow on how we ought to love others. That is, after all, the point that Paul is making in our sermon text. Paul writes in verse 2 that we are to walk in love just as Jesus walked in love. Jesus is, therefore, our role model for walking in love. He is much more than just a role model, and that's a very important point, but he's a role model nonetheless. When we consider the command in our sermon text to walk in love, we must not think of love in the sentimental sense that the world thinks of it. Uh, The world's definition of love is self-centered. It's a disordered love, which is focused on and centered upon oneself rather than on others. And so the world's way of loving is always selfish and manipulative. It's always selfish and manipulative because it always seeks self-interest, self-gratification, self-glorification, self-protection, and so on. And the Bible defines love much differently. It's not an emotion that you feel, but the willingness to renounce self for the good of another. And that's why Jesus is presented in our sermon text as the example of how we should walk in love. How does Paul say Jesus loved us? Well, look at verse two. He loved us by giving himself for us. He loved us by giving himself for us. One of the chief characteristics that distinguishes biblical love from worldly love is that biblical love gives oneself for others. Biblical love aims to build others up, whereas worldly love aims to build oneself up. Or to put it in slightly different words, biblical love is selfless, whereas worldly love is selfish. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a popular Christian author and conference speaker named Larry Burkett. And his ministry focused on personal finance and Christian stewardship. And one of the things Larry Burkett was fond of saying is that you can tell a lot about a person's priorities just by looking at how they spend their money. Even if a person is a complete stranger to you, You don't know him from Adam. If you're able to look at the transactions that pass through his bank account and credit card accounts, you can have a pretty good idea of what that person's priorities are. If you see a consistent pattern of giving of the first fruits uh, to a local church, meaning if there's a tithe payment that follows every deposit into the the person's bank account, then you you can be pretty certain that this person's top priority is serving and honoring the Lord. You could tell that by looking at his bank account. If you see a lot of payments to the grocery stores, uh, utility companies, and insurance companies, then you could know that this person is responsible for maintaining a home. That's one of his priorities in his life. If you see payments made to pediatricians, you know he has children. And if you see payments made to a Christian school or to the HSLDA, then you know that his children's Christian education is a priority to him. 
if he has a house loan, car loan, student loan, consumer debt, then you'll be able to discern these things simply by looking at the payments that are made to these various lenders. If he prioritizes saving, then you'll see money transferred to investment and retirement accounts. The point that Larry Burkett was driving at with its little exercise is that we can discern our own priorities by looking at our own spending as if we were looking at the spending of a stranger. And this can be an effective way of discovering idols that we didn't know we have. Burkett suggested that if you're spending more than a certain percentage of your income on housing, then your home might be an idol to you. You may be trying to keep up with the Joneses. And so status in the eyes of your peers might be your idol. Or if you're spending money on interest payments, late fees, overdraft fees, and other finance charges, then you probably lack self-discipline and self-control. Spontaneity and irresponsibility might be your idols. Or if spending money on, you're spending money on dining out when you have past due debt, then intemperance and extravagance might be your idols. And if you're spending more than a certain percentage of your income on recreation and entertainment, then pleasure might be your idol. This was one of Larry Burkett's very helpful contributions for assessing our own priorities. It's an objective test that allows you to look at your own priorities from a different perspective than what you would normally look at, and it has the potential for revealing to you things that you may not have seen about the way you are stewarding God's money. Well, I submit to you that we can do something similar with discerning how we're stewarding God's love. The command is to walk in love, but the question that naturally arises from this command is, are you walking in biblical love or are you walking in worldly love? And what I'm proposing as a helpful test for answering this question is to look at the way you give gifts to other people. Look at the way you give gifts to other people. Just as looking at your spending is a strong indication of where your priorities are, looking at the way you give gifts is a strong indication of whether worldly love or biblical love is functioning within your heart. Because worldly love is selfish and manipulative, the person who has worldly love in his heart will give gifts in selfish and manipulative ways. What might that look like? Let me give you three examples. Example number one, a selfish person will give gifts in an attempt to cover over his sinful behavior. A selfish person will give gifts in an attempt to cover over his sinful behavior. This is what Jacob did when he was returning to Canaan. He heard Esau was coming out to meet him. Jacob tried to pacify Esau's anger by sending him gifts. That was a blatant form of of manipulation. Jacob wasn't sending those gifts because he wanted to bless Esau. He was sending those gifts to manipulate Esau. Jacob feared that Esau would kill him. So he sent gifts to try to pacify Esau's anger and hostility. This type of gift giving is an indication of selfish and manipulative worldly love, which is operating within the gift giver's heart. 
the person who has biblical love operating in his heart knows that the true and genuine reconciliation um, concerning matters of sin can only be accomplished through the gospel. That true and genuine reconciliation can only be accomplished through humble confession and repentance and honest forgiveness. There are no gifts involved in biblical reconciliation. Unless, of course, we want to talk about the gift of Jesus Christ or the gift of salvation by grace through faith. But those are gifts that God gives to sinners, not the gifts that sinners give to other sinners. So biblical love doesn't give gifts in an effort to manipulate another person to sweep sin under the rug. That's what worldly love does. Example number two. The person with worldly love operates, uh, with worldly love operating in his heart will give gifts with the expectation that the recipient will give back a similar gift. He'll give gifts with the expectation that the recipient will give back a similar gift. Wilma gave a birthday gift to Patty, but Patty did not give a birthday gift to Wilma. So Wilma stopped giving Patty birthday gifts. Had Patty reciprocated by giving Wilma gifts, and Wilma would have kept giving Patty gifts. But since Patty didn't respond, didn't meet Wilma's expectation, then she stopped giving gifts. Gift giving with the expectation of getting back is not walking in biblical love. That's walking in worldly love. That's a disordered love that has self at the center. And don't think of this merely in terms of giving and receiving birthday gifts. Uh, Jesus applied this biblical principle of giving without expecting anything in return to a variety of different things. He said in Luke 6, verses 32 through 35, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be, you will be the sons of the Most High. And likewise, in Luke 14, 12, Jesus said that when you give a dinner or a supper, don't just invite the people who can repay you by inviting you back to their house for another dinner or supper, but invite those who are unable to return the favor. In other words, offer your food and fellowship without any strings attached, without any expectation of having the favor return. That's walking in biblical love. That's giving out of a heart which is, in which biblical love is functioning. Example number three, worldly love is not only displayed by trying to cover over sins with gifts and with attaching strings to gifts, but it's also displayed by not giving gifts. Worldly love is also displayed by not giving gifts. Some people are so focused on themselves that it rarely occurs to them that they have the opportunity to bless other people. 
they only see other people as a means of getting something. What can that person do for me? What can that person, how can that person make my life better? Who does that person know or what does he have that can advance my agenda and my interests? Have you ever been to a business mixer? If you don't know what a business mixer is, it's a cocktail party for business people. It's intended to be a networking event where business people get together and exchange their business cards. Everybody is there for the same reason. It's to increase their sale, to build their business. But they're not trying to sell their products and services to the other people at the mixer. If that happens, that's a bonus, but that's not the intent. Rather, they try to use the people at the mixer to gain access to more customers. So a person attending the mixer will introduce himself to as many other people as possible by saying something like, hi, my name is Bob, and I sell automobile insurance. I specialize in, in uh, finding policies for people who are difficult to insure. This includes drivers under 25, those who have three or more moving violations on their record, and those who have a DUI. Do you know anyone who fits this description? Would you be willing to introduce me to them? And the other person will say, I sell water, water softeners. My target customers are homeowners who have a domestic well. Do you know anyone that fits this description? Can you introduce me to them? Business mixers are an overt display of worldly love in action. Everybody's there to get something. Everybody's there for self-promotion. Everybody's there to use other people to advance their own interests. And that's how a lot of people are who walk in worldly love. They may not be businessmen. They may not be handing out business cards and a mixer, but they're so focused on advancing their own interests that they give little concern, little consideration to the interests of other people and how they can be a blessing to those other people. They only see other people as a means for getting what they want. And while they try to hide this selfishness because they know that it's not socially acceptable behavior, one of the telltale signs that this worldly love is operating in their heart is that they rarely give gifts to other people. And if they do, then those gifts are given with strings attached or they're given to manipulate the other person into overlooking an offense or some other form of manipulation. Now somebody will ask, what about the poor and people who are on a tight fixed income? They may not be able to afford giving gifts. And if you say that not giving gifts is an indication of worldly love, then aren't you placing a burden of guilt upon those who want to give gifts but cannot afford to give gifts? Well, let me offer two responses to this question. First, the heart that wants to give will give, even if it has to give sacrificially. Jesus called attention to this when he witnessed the poor widow putting two mites into the temple treasury. Because she loved God and was committed to serving him with her resources, she was willing to give the Lord everything she had. She could have justified giving one mite to the temple treasury. 
She could have said, Lord, you only require that I give you 10%, but I'm going to give you 50% of my money. But she sacrificially gave both mites. And when Jesus commented on this to his disciples, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who had given to the treasury, for they all put out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, this is not to say that people need to give away their whole livelihood. That's not the point. The point here is that even those who have very little to give still have something to give. And Jesus is teaching us that the value God attributes to a person's gift increases with the sacrifice the giver made in giving the gift. So the first response to the question of poor people giving gifts is to point out that everybody has, everybody has something to give, even if it's very, very small. And very, very small gifts, sacrificially given, are enormous in the eyes of God. The second response is, uh, to this question is to point out that all gifts don't have to be things that are monetized. Gifts don't have to be things that have a dollar value assigned to them. Everybody is capable of giving themselves. You can give your time to another person. You can help meet the needs of other people. You can volunteer to watch your friend's children when she goes to a doctor's appointment. You can give a ride to a coworker whose car is in the shop. You can visit with people who who you know are lonely You can bring a meal to somebody who's sick. You can pick up the phone and pray with somebody who's anxious. You can write notes of encouragement to other people. You can draw a picture for somebody. You can help an elderly person with their household chores. You can go for a walk with the person who needs to get outside and get some exercise. When you stop to think about the specific people that God has placed in your life, and what all their individual varied needs are, you'll have no shortage of opportunity to give away your time, energy, and attention. And that's really what it means to walk in biblical love, right? When we broaden the definition of gift giving to include acts of friendship, acts of mercy, acts of compassion, and meeting the needs of other people, we recognize that this is what Paul is writing about in our sermon text, because that's precisely the example that Jesus showed us. Paul says in verse two that Jesus gave himself for us. That's not something that can be monetized. When Jesus wanted to give us a gift, he didn't go down to the store and buy something. Rather, he gave himself. And he gave himself sacrificially, Paul goes on to write in verse two. So brothers and sisters, if you're going to emulate Jesus by walking in biblical love, then you need to expect that it's going to require you to make some personal sacrifices. You're going to need to lay your life down for others. You're gonna need to put the needs and interests of others before your own. You're going to need to put aside your personal comfort and convenience so you can serve others with humility and grace. It wasn't that long ago 
that I was making an application to a reading of God's law here in one of our worship services when I expressed concern with the recent trend of setting boundaries for toxic people. And that generated a response from several people in our congregation. And I think one or two responses may have come during our Q&A time, but others came to me privately, and I wonder if yet there were still others who may have been wanting some form of clarification of what was said, but just never asked. And so I'd like to revisit that topic because it's evidently something that, that several of us are grappling with. Setting boundaries with toxic people has been an approach advocated by secular psychology for quite a while now. Um, this practice was popularized in the Christian church in 1992 when Henry Cloud and John Townsend wrote the book Boundaries, When to Say Yes, How to Say No, to Take Control of Your Life. That's the title of the book, title and subtitle. Boundaries, when to say yes and how to say no to take control of your life. And since then, uh, these two authors have gone on to write several more books on this topic. These books include Boundaries in Marriage, uh, Boundaries with Teens, uh, Boundaries with Kids, Boundaries with Dating, and Safe People, How to Find Relationships that Are Good for You and Avoid Those That Aren't. Now, what I hope you can discern from just hearing these titles is that the presupposition upon which all of these books are written is that you're supposed to be in control of who's in your life and who's not in your life. You're supposed to control the things by, these things by establishing boundaries that maintain the relationships that are good for you and discontinue the ones that are not. But this is not a biblical presupposition, brothers and sisters. We don't have the knowledge or wisdom to discern what's good for us and what's not good for us. This is because we don't have the knowledge or wisdom to discern what God is doing in any given situation. How do you know that God isn't working something wonderful and marvelous through your experience with a difficult person? Take Judas Iscariot as an example. I think we can all agree that Judas was a quote-unquote, toxic person. And yet, Jesus shared three years of his life with Judas, even though he knew from the very beginning that Judas was going to betray him. In fact, one of the most selfless scenes in Jesus' life is recorded in John 13. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. While Jesus and the 12 disciples were all gathered together in the upper room for the Last Supper, Jesus knelt down and washed their feet. Now, Peter was understandably shocked that Jesus was washing his feet, but the real shocker is that Jesus was washing Judas's feet. Even before Jesus began to wash anybody's feet, John 13, verse 2 says, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. The devil had already put it into his heart. And yet, Jesus still washed Judas's feet. What if Jesus had read the Boundaries book and was convinced that he needed to take control of the relationships in his life? What would have happened if Jesus set boundaries that prevented Judas from betraying him. Where would we be then? 
Now you might be thinking, well, yeah, okay, but that's a, that's a unique situation because God intended to use Judas to bring about Jesus' crucifixion. That was all part of the plan. Yes, that's true. That was part of God's plan. But realize, God's plan for humanity is still unfolding. And I'm convinced that the ways of the Lord have not changed. Just as God used Judas to bring about some good for his people, so the Lord continues to use, and I'm going to use the term, toxic people to bring about good in our lives today. It's the Lord who is in control of your lives, brothers and sisters. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, All the days are ordained for me, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Right? Speaking about God's sovereignty over our lives, his control over our lives. If you take control of your life and exclude all the difficult people by setting boundaries, boundaries that are determined according to your own finite, infallible human wisdom, if you, then you're going to find yourself bucking up against God's plan for your life. You're going to find yourself acting in opposition to God. Do you remember the, the advice that Gamaliel gave to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5 verse 39? When the Sanhedrin was making plans to enforce some pretty severe boundaries upon the apostles, Gamaliel stood up and said, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For if this is of God, you will be found to fight against God. How do you know, dear friends, that the difficult people in your life are not of God? How do you know that he's not using those difficult relationships for your necessary sanctification? Our sermon text teaches us that Jesus is our example for walking in love. When we look at Jesus' life, his treatment of Judas, the way Jesus ate and drank with sinners, how he showed compassion to the immoral woman at the well, how he wept when he arrived at Mary and Martha's house, how he willingly endured the whipping and beating and scourging and crucifixion, how he drank and drained the dregs of the cup of God's wrath. When we look at the example of Jesus' life, we're left with the undeniable truth that the life we live is not about us. The life we live is not about us. Your life is not about you. My life is not about me. Our life is not about us. We're here to bring glory to God. And the reason we've been redeemed from our sins is so that we can give glory to God. You don't necessarily need to know and understand how everything works behind the scenes, but what the Bible is teaching us is that you most glorify God when you walk in biblical love. And walking in biblical love means that you're going to need to make personal sacrifices. You're going to have to lay your life down for others. You're going to have to put the needs and interests of others before your own. You're going to have to put, put aside your own personal comfort and convenience so that you can serve others with humility and grace. But that is not a problem because your life is not about you. It's about giving glory to God.
and with Jesus as your example of how to walk in love, you can give yourself to others and in doing so, give glory to God. Amen. And let's pray. Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.